when Jesus hung on that cross, you can almost imagine Satan saying, Jesus, you should have taken my great offer I gave you at the beginning of your ministry. You know, when I gave you that scholarship to my special school of world domination. And instead, you have Jesus, humble, hanging on a cross, naked, with thieves on either side. And then Jesus utters this powerful prayer that changes everything. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And you're thinking, what? When you're about to die, this is what you pray? Where's the, where's the blame shifting? Where's the blasphemy? Where's the, where's the anger and the calling down of vengeance on your enemies? No, at the heart of the gospel is forgiveness. The heart of the gospel is humility. And a Messiah who comes humbly, who is betrayed and murdered by his followers, how could someone like that be the savior of the world? This truly is a stumbling block to the Jews and utter foolishness to Gentiles. But it shows us a completely different kingdom. The fact that Father, he's praying to his Father, shows, first of all, that Jesus, just as he has throughout life, he's completely surrendered to the will of his Father. And he's pleading mercy for us. Mercy. And he's not owning our sin. He's asking forgiveness for our sin, recognizing that we put him there, but saying, Father, put it on me instead. Because we don't know what we're doing. Mercy, grace, unmerited favor extended to us. I wonder at one point, at what point in this narrative, <laughs> Satan suddenly realized that in his mad rush to put Jesus on the cross, that he'd completely misunderstood. And of course, darkness cannot comprehend the light. And the light of the world had come, and he was breaking all of those rules. The message of this prayer is that love wins. The message of this prayer is that the heart of the gospel is love, forgiveness, and redemption. That is our Father's heart. And these words at the greatest extremity of his life, just shortly before his death, show us what a savior we have, that there is only one Jesus. There is only one high priest who alone could extend such grace and mercy. That only in Jesus do we have a reasonable and justifiable hope. The cross and this message of forgiveness is God's promise to us that by asking him to be our Lord and Savior, by receiving that gift of forgiveness, that we truly have an eternal hope and we have an eternal home. Continuing with the seven last words of Jesus, a reading from Luke 23. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, 
since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The cross of Jesus is so scandalous. I was reading an author this week who was talking about how the difficulty his Muslim friend has with Jesus is the humiliation. How does your God die a criminal's death on a cross? To his Muslim friend, God is transcendent. God does not die, and certainly he doesn't die like this. And here is our God, the one we worship, the Lord Jesus, ending a week where he is arrested without a fight, betrayed and denied by his closest friends, and tried in a mock trial. Here he is left hanging naked on a cross. And in that moment, the thief to one side of him, catching fully the irony of the moment that the one who claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah is dying a criminal's death just like himself, this thief joins in on the mockery. In his mind, Jesus, the supposed Messiah, is no different than himself. He is a sham deserving to be scorned. Our choice to follow Jesus is a statement of who Jesus is and who we are. For the one thief, Jesus was a sham. But it's the other thief whose confession we marvel at. In his dying moment, he came to some recognition of Jesus. What he sees in confession and confesses is that Jesus had done nothing wrong and that he, in contrast, is a thief fully deserving of his own punishment. And it's based on this simple understanding of who Jesus is and who he is that he makes his appeal. Calling him by name, he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And it's those words, or it's in those words, that he testifies to what else he sees. Not seeing Jesus as a sham like the other thief, but a future king setting off to establish a kingdom. It doesn't make sense. How does he see a king hanging there on that cross? It makes you wonder what he knew about Jesus. Had he seen him before? Had he listened to his teachings? Had he witnessed his miracles? Or was it just something about him, the way that he was dying there on that cross, that convinced him of who Jesus was? And what did we know? Uh, and what did he know about Jesus' kingdom? Why did he even think that there would be room for him in that kingdom? Being a criminal, he must have known something. And perhaps what he knew was this. That Jesus' words, Truly I tell you today you will, be in, you will be with me in paradise, would be just the kind of words that Jesus would say. Offering mercy in his dying moments, dying the way he lived, a life proclaiming good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and setting the oppressed free. And isn't that just like Jesus? In his great humiliation, and down to his last words, he offers an invitation to a criminal to join him in paradise. And that, friends, is the God that we are saying yes to once again. The one who gathers together the poor, the prisoners, the prostitutes, the criminals, and the sinners, just like you and I, to establish a new kingdom. And the invitation to join in this kingdom, led by the humiliated King Jesus, is ours once again.
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. John 19, verses 26 and 27. When I was first asked to reflect on these verses, I confess it didn't really seem like there was much to reflect on. What is there to say about Jesus' words to his mother and to his disciple John? How was I going to unpack this? But the more I gave these verses some thought and prayer, the more I read, I was struck by just how much there is to unpack. As Jesus hung on the cross, suffering and dying, he's still reaching out to others and showing how he provides for the lonely and brokenhearted. His parting words to two of his own are to take care of each other. Mary and John are standing there heartbroken as their son and friend is taking his last breaths. And as Jesus is reaching out to them, he's asking Mary and John to reach out to each other, to make space for each other in their grief. Although both Mary and John were lost in their own sorrow, Jesus is calling them in their brokenheartedness to care for and reach out to each other. As he shows love in his sorrow and suffering, Jesus is asking the same of John and Mary, to love each other, to make room for new relationships, and to care. And the more I thought about this, the more I thought of what a beautiful and fitting picture this paints for us the church in this time we are living in. For most of us on some level, this is a time of loss and sorrow. Whether it is our jobs, our health, our freedom, the company of others, or simply the loss of control and routine of life as we knew it, it feels like we're all mourning something. And we can easily turn inward and stay trapped in our sorrow and grief. But as with Mary and John, Jesus is calling us to greater things. As he reaches out to the brokenhearted and forsaken, Jesus calls us to do the same. In this time that feels dark and lonely, Jesus is asking us to make space for each other, to create relationships of care. It feels counterintuitive to make space for others when we feel like merely surviving, like making it through is taking every ounce of our existence but our example is Jesus. As he hung dying, he made space for the brokenhearted. Like Mary and John, if we let ourselves draw near to the cross, we open ourselves to healing for our broken hearts, to restoration and to deeper relationships with other believers. In identifying with Jesus and his suffering, we can draw near to others who are suffering. And suddenly in that broken heart you thought couldn't hold any more, you have space. Maybe not a lot, but enough to hold someone else up. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, verse 40. Whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. As we make space and care for each other, we are doing what Mary and John did. We are caring for the least of these. We are caring for the body of Christ and for Jesus himself. And as Jesus says in the Beatitudes, you're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. Even in his death, Jesus was reminding us of this truth, yet another example of his upside down kingdom. As we make space to care for others, even in our grief, 
Jesus will always care for us. Will I lift up my head in my own moments of grief and sadness and make space to care for others as Jesus cared for Mary and John and as they cared for each other? If Jesus could spare a moment to care for others as he hung on the cross, how much more can I stop and do the same? In 1944, towards the end of the Second World War, Jürgen Moltmann, a boy of 18 years, was drafted into the German army. In February of 1945, he was taken as a prisoner of war and spent the next three years in prison camps in Belgium, Scotland, and England. At the beginning of his imprisonment, he had lost all hope. His interest in living drifted away. He felt God-forsaken. At the end of 1945, a British army chaplain arrived at the camp to give out Bibles to the prisoners. Moltmann had not grown up in a religious home, and this was the first Bible he had ever owned. He wasn't all that interested in receiving it, to be honest. He and his friends joked that they wished the chaplain had been handing out cigarettes instead. But there wasn't much to do, and so, I'll, so to pass the time, he disinterestedly started to read. Eventually, he stumbled upon the Psalms of Lament, and as he read the psalmists crying out to God in their pain and their anguish and their questions, he recognized the unvoiced cries of his own heart, and they called his soul to God. As he continued to read, he came to the Gospel of Mark and the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And as he read the cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was struck by this realization. This is the one who understands me. Jesus knew him in the God-forsakenness of the prison camp, and with this realization he was seized with a great hope, and the courage to begin living again began to build within him. On the cross, Jesus turns to a psalm of lament, Psalm 22, and he claims its first verse as his own. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have always been amazed at these words. The Gospel of John begins by proclaiming that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yet here, on the cross, the one who had for all eternity known intimate fellowship with God the Father could only experience his absence, his silence. At his baptism, Jesus heard these words, This is my Son, in him I am well pleased. But now, at his hour of greatest need, no word of comfort or consolation is granted to him. I have often wondered if this is what Jesus feared most as he pleaded with his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. While the physical pain of crucifixion was enough to be fearful of, could it be that what Jesus was most afraid of was being cut off from his father, of discovering a void? where there had once been sustaining presence. On the cross, we see that God did not keep himself distant and detached from the tragedy of human experience. Instead, he allowed it to break him. He who had no sin became sin for us. The tearing of the curtain of the temple, signifying the renewal of intimate relationship between God and humankind, 
mirrors a tearing in the fabric of God himself. Father and Son are torn apart. The Son suffers the absence of the Father, and the Father suffers the death of the Son. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, reflecting on the horrors of war from a German prison, wrote, Only the suffering God can help. As we live in our moment of history, Bonhoeffer's words and Jesus' cry from the cross have a particular poignancy. Life as we know it has been suddenly and violently turned upside down. Tens of thousands of people have died. Over a million people are sick. Isolated in our homes and practicing social distancing, we fear for the future. Millions are out of work and do not know how they're going to provide for their families. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? At least that is how it can feel. Yet at the cross, we encounter the God who has come near. Jesus was forsaken so that we do not have to be. In Jesus we meet, as Moltmann writes, the eternal love who feels and suffers with us. God with us in the pain and mess of this world. There is a movement we find in the Lament Psalms. While they begin in anguish questioning and complaint, something changes as they move towards their conclusion. Hope, praise, and trust emerge. This same movement can be found in Psalm 22. Two-thirds of the way in, we discover declarations of praise. And here we enter into this great mystery that suffering and hope reinforce each other. That out of the depths of our despair, hope rises to meet us. The Easter story brings us face to face with the powerlessness and suffering of God and reminds us that it is by his wounds that we are healed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus takes up our cry, but it is not the last word. Psalm 22 ends with these words. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. At some point in the future, as we look back on this time in our history, may the same be true for us. Amen. I am thirsty. For most of my life, I've seen this verse as an example of Jesus' humanity, a small, seemingly ordinary detail that helped me identify with him. Today you will be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those statements resonate with a power of his divinity. But to be thirsty? It seems so weak. The detail seems inconsequential. A literary pause in the action of the crucifixion story a moment for the reader to catch their breath before the important events unfold in the following verses. But lately, these little words have come to mean as much to me as the Beatitudes or the Lord's Prayer. Consider for a moment Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God 
and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And Jesus answered her, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Think for a minute. How intimately is God connected with the image of water? God, the creator, is the one who commands the water. He sets their boundaries. He causes them to flow. He causes it to rain for 40 days and nights. He splits the Red Sea. He makes water rush from the barren rock in the wilderness. In the days of Elijah, he withholds water for three years, then brings it back in a thunderstorm. Jesus calms it. He walks on it. He turns it into wine. The imagery of water is the imagery of God. In the Old Testament, Eli is discouraged by his sons who are cheating the people. He challenges them and observes, If you sin against another person, there's help. God's help. But if you sin against God, who is around to help? When we thirst, there is help. God's help. The source of living water. But if God himself is thirsty... Who is around to help? There is no relief. Consider this sacrifice, the source of living water dying in thirst. If water is a metaphor for Jesus' very nature, the simple statement, I am thirsty, redefines how I understand Philippians 2. Remember, Jesus did not consider his nature as God something to be held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing. I've always known Jesus died so that we could live. And I feel guilty saying this aloud, but I never really understood why this was significant. Socrates died for philosophy. The martyrs, too, died for their faith. Vincent Coleman died during the Halifax explosion because he stayed behind to warn the oncoming trains to stop. History is full of people who die to save others. Why is this different? In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. When I see Jesus on the cross, I witness the great I am becoming the even greater I am thirsty. Yes, Jesus died so that we may live. But in this moment, Jesus thirsts so that we can drink. I force you. Let me read to you from John chapter 19, verse 30. After Jesus took the drink, he said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. 
In the Gospel of John, these are the very last words of Jesus before he dies. It is finished. It is done. Now, if, if you're like me, you hear the words, it is finished, and you hear words of triumph, right? I mean, we know how the story ends. God raises this Jesus from the dead. God wins. And Jesus is alive forevermore. We hear the words, it is finished, and we understand their full meaning. Jesus has carried out his mission perfectly. And God's plan to reconcile the world has been set in motion. The work has been accomplished. In fact, if you'd asked me, I always thought Jesus said these words with a loud voice. You know, with that voice of triumph. It is finished! You know, kind of Charlton Heston-like. But that's not what the text says. At least not in John. There is no loud voice. Jesus says these words and then... As one translation puts it, his head falls forward and he dies. And I can only imagine how the disciples heard those words. It's done. It's over. It's finished. All our plans, all our dreams, all our hopes, all gone. We've given our lives to this man thinking he was the one and now... Suddenly, Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross becomes the disciples' cry beneath the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Why have you left us alone? We put our trust in you, and now you've abandoned us. And then comes Saturday, a day of nothingness, a day of silence. No God, no triumph, only questions. What a long day that must have been knowing that life would never be the same and not quite sure how to proceed. And I wonder if that's not the space that many of us are finding ourselves in right now. I'm certainly hearing the words, it's over, more and more these days. My daughter's in theater and all the plays she's been working on for so long are now cancelled. They're done. Students who are getting ready to graduate and looking forward to ceremonies and celebrations are left wondering, what happens now? I mean, travel plans are cancelled. Jobs have ended. Businesses are not sure exactly what life will look like post-corona, or, or even if their doors will open again, right? I mean, it's tough. Life as we've known, at least for now, is finished. And for some of us, the Saturday that we find ourselves in, the silence, the uncertainty, the disappointment, the fear, well, it's almost overwhelming. It is finished. If this is where you're finding yourself now, know that you're not alone. This is the lament of Good Friday and Silent Saturday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are actually the words from Psalm 22, and there the psalmist continues. Nevertheless, he says, I love that word, nevertheless, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and I will praise you. In times such as these, when so much of what we're counting on seems to be finished, 
we are left once again to simply trust in God, to commit our spirit and lives to the one who is holy. And so we come to the final words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 46. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice. There it is. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Wow. When it's all said and done, Jesus ends his life the way he lived his life. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I love those words as a COVID prayer. <laughs> into your hands I place my life. Into your hands I place my fears, my uncertainties, my disappointments, my doubts, my anger. I, I place them all in your hands, for your hands are good hands, right? I mean, we've experienced the goodness of God, and that's enough. Here at Forest View, we affirm that we want to be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him. We want to become more like Jesus. And so that means, like Jesus, we will not be afraid to lament in the face of disappointment and loss. And during this season, there's lots of that. It means that even in these dark times, we will take notice of those who are most impacted by the loss just as Jesus cares for his mother. But ultimately, it means that we will be a people of hope and trust, a nevertheless people. When so much around us is finished and done, we once again commit our lives to the one who is holy, because this holy God has proven himself to be faithful in the past, and he will be faithful in the future. Because as surely as the darkness of Friday is upon us, as surely as the silence of Saturday envelops us, just as surely Easter is coming, for Christ is risen. Let's conclude with this prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, while we were still your enemies, you willed that our Savior should take our flesh and suffer our death upon the cross, winning the victory over death for our sake. In repentance, we humbly place all that we are into your hands. We ask that you give us the courage to follow the way of the cross, that we might share in your resurrection life that all people may be drawn unto you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Well, that concludes our Good Friday Reflections. Make sure to join us on Sunday morning as we celebrate through Zoom that Christ is risen.